What's going on, my awesome peoples out there? Welcome to The View from the Front. Hope everyone is doing amazing out there from wherever you're joining us. My name is Stan, and this is the November 9th edition. If, by chance, you're new to the show, I'm a prior infantry marine. I've been deployed. I've dodged a few bullets. And I've also done the whole journalism thing, getting a degree, spending more than 10 years in the news business. So I'm pretty uniquely qualified to try to do what I'm trying to accomplish here. And what is that? Well, every week I try to do three things. I cover hotspots happening around the world. I attempt to unite our country, and my goodness, do we need that. And I always end with a few words of encouragement. So if it's your first time here, again, welcome. I think you're going to enjoy it. Now, I will say we are going to spend the majority of this episode on Ukraine because, man, it kind of feels like the pivotal part of a movie or a book right now, at least for Ukraine. You've got congressional funding up in the air. You've got a general arguing, sort of, with the president in Ukraine. you got everything on the line. You've got... News articles starting to say the word stalemate. You've got Western attention almost completely shifted away from Ukraine toward Israel. And man, if you have been following this war as closely as myself, and probably most of the listeners, if you're new, you may not have been following it as much, but it just really feels like something needs to happen And it needs to happen soon. All of this stuff is just up in the air. And so we're just going to get into that and really get into the weeds on some of that stuff. Because, man, it is, uh, you know, winter is coming. And it is, there's just a lot in the air for for Ukraine right now. So I'm going to begin with some good news. And then we are going to get into all of the contingencies and the things that have people like me a little concerned. And it's funny because it's not like there's some shocking battlefield defeat that could potentially happen. No. No, that's not what's potentially happening at all. But wars are about more than what happens on the battlefield. And that is one of the themes that I'm going to get into some tonight adding in some historical anecdotes from the Civil War that we went through here in America, talking about Vietnam a little bit, because wars are unfortunately more than just what happens on the battlefield. So we're going to get into that. I said I would start with a little bit of good news. So let's start with just a little bit of good news. That good news is Ukraine managed to badly damage a newly built Russian ship. It's a naval corvette, so it's a smallerish ship, but it was a pretty modern one. It was actually launched in 2021, and this ship was hit in port. We have covered a lot in previous episodes about how Russia can't even put its fleet out at sea. It is under such a severe threat of drone attacks mainly, but also missile attacks. And so they've been staying in port, but they've been launching missiles from inside these ports, so their navy still has had some strategic benefit. 
as I had reported during a previous attack on a Russian sub and ship in occupied Crimea. That was in the naval port of Sevastopol. Russia had removed its navy from there, so they leave occupied Crimea, which is, of course, on the Crimean Peninsula, and they moved them back further east to Russian territory. Well, this ship was actually near the Kerch Bridge in a port that's called Kerch. Go figure. And it was damaged, and analysts are trying to figure out what missiles may have been used because this is one of the longest and largest distances covered by missiles. So the Russians clearly thought this ship was safe there. It's been severely damaged, so clearly it's not safe there. And so the Russians are going to have to reconfigure both where they might position some of their naval resources, but they also have to figure out what did Ukraine just hit this ship with. And so that'll be a nice little puzzle for them to chew on in the coming days. So that was the little bit of good news. Wanted to start with a little good news. I am an optimist by nature. So we started with some good news. Now let's move into the first of some parts of the news that has to have you a little bit concerned. Or at least, like I said, I think kind of like there's a bunch of balls up in the air. And it could still all work out fine. But man, it really does feel like the end of a movie because these balls are up in the air. And it really feels like something has to happen. The first thing, I talked a lot last week about the update on funding in the U.S. This is something that absolutely has to happen. It, in fact, was reported today, I'm recording this on Wednesday night, that the funding that the U.S. has approved for Ukraine is 96 percent depleted so something's going to have to happen soon i did as much research as i could on this prior to recording the same folks who thought it would pass last week such as senator romney senator graham those are two republicans obviously the biden administration other leaders in the senate such as uh, schumer who's a democrat they still think it's going to pass but let's be clear a week has passed and no real progress has happened. So funding is at 96% depleted. The world is watching. This is concerning. Now one possible positive spin is that a large majority of the U.S. supports the funding. You'll see numbers like 60 to 70%. And there were elections on Tuesday of this week. Republicans got hammered. In red states such as Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia. Virginia often slightly leads or leans blue, but it does have a Republican governor, and they thought they could pass kind of a moderate abortion ban of 15 weeks. They lost the Senate and the House in Virginia. A Democratic governor was reelected in Kentucky against someone that Trump had supported, and in super red. Ohio, just like Super Red, Kentucky, both, and, and this includes independents and Republicans, but Democrats, independents, and some percentage of Republicans absolutely demolished this attempt to basically outlaw abortions. So I only share all that not because I want to get into the issue of abortion or any of that, but because none of these pretty 
one-sided, lopsided defeats were expected, according to the polls. They were supposed to be much closer. So, the side of me that's, that sees how important this funding issue is for Ukraine is hoping that those who are opposing funding Ukraine in Congress can read the tea leaves and see that a good chunk of America supports funding this democracy that remains under a horrific assault from a much larger neighbor, who, by the way, has literally stolen about 10,000 kids and shipped them into Russia. So I think, I hope those elections will help the funding. But that's the first ball up in the air. We will know more in the coming days, week or so, on whether that's going to get approved or not, because that is very, very important for Ukraine. And the timing of that is what leads into the very high-stakes political drama that's happening inside Ukraine itself. So we have to back up just a little bit to one week ago, November 1st, exactly seven days ago as I'm recording this, when an article in The, in the Economist was published. And so The Economist gets to do an interview with the head general of Ukraine. And let me read the headline and the subheadline of this article. The headline is Ukraine's commander-in-chief on the breakthrough he needs to beat Russia. And the subheadline, or what we used to call in journalism circles as the, as the subhead, is General Valery Zaluzny admits the war is at a stalemate. Ah, starting off with that S word. Not a good one. Let me just read you the first paragraph of this article that basically sent shockwaves through the foreign policy establishment. And unfortunately, those echoes from that shockwave reach into the halls of Congress. In fact, General Zaluzny also wrote a paper that's pretty long, and there's some really technical stuff that's in the weeds that's brilliant, honestly. But unfortunately, it was the larger news he made that we're mainly going to talk about. But let me read you this first paragraph of an article that, like I said, it just... In fact, I had a couple people reach out to me and said, Stan, you didn't get into that news last episode, which it broke on a Wednesday. The day of, I was putting everything out. I had the show all planned out. And I just it was such an important article that I couldn't really find a way to cover it the way it needed to be covered. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me read you this first paragraph. Five months into its counteroffensive, Ukraine has managed to advance by just 17 kilometers. <laughs> Guys, that's the first sentence. That is not a good first sentence if you're trying to sell the war in Ukraine to folks in the West who are helping fund it. 
17 kilometers. That's the first sentence. And we've already got the word stalemate in the subhead. Let's continue that first paragraph, though. Russia fought for 10 months around Bakhmut in the east to take a town six by six kilometers. And that last part is in quotes, by the way. They're quoting the general. And then the, the paragraph continues. Sharing his first comprehensive assessment of the campaign with The Economist in an interview this week, Ukraine's commander-in-chief, General Valery Zaluzny, says the battlefield reminds him of the great conflict of a century ago. Quote, Just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate, he says. That's his quote. He says this. And then the paragraph continues. The general concludes that it would take a massive technological leap to break the deadlock. So we go from stalemate to the word deadlock. And then they quote him all of this in the first paragraph. Of course, this is an English magazine, so they do longer paragraphs than we do in America. But this is in the first paragraph. They quote him as saying, There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. That was the quote. There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. Wow. You can just hear the, and even my own, but you can just hear people's souls deflate. There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. Oh, that is heartbreaking, isn't it? Guys like me who have been optimists, who have helped push and encourage and support this counteroffensive that's been, you know, planned and hoped for all spring and then through the months of summer. And then you're going into fall. We've been talking for a few weeks about some analysts saying, guys, we're running out of time. Winter's going to be here. And Ukraine's like, oh, no, it's fine. We're going to fight through winter. No biggie. But then their general does an interview and says there will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. Man, I don't even know how to react to that. The second paragraph. I mean, you've already taken this punch. You might as well keep going for a little more a little more punishment, right? So here's the second paragraph. The course of the counteroffensive has undermined Western hopes that Ukraine could use it to demonstrate that the war is unwinnable, forcing Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, to negotiate. I mean, that's a tough sentence there, too, isn't it? The course of the counteroffensive has undermined Western hopes that Ukraine could use it, it being the counteroffensive, to demonstrate that the war is unwinnable, forcing Russia's president to negotiate. I'll continue reading. It has also undercut General Zaluzny's assumption that he could stop Russia by bleeding its troops. This is his quote. That was my mistake. Russia has lost at least 150,000 dead. In any other country, such casualties would have stopped the war. But he goes on to say, But not in Russia where life is cheap and where Mr. Putin's reference points 
are the First and Second World Wars in which Russia lost tens of millions. Now, the article goes on to discuss some of the challenges. I think I'll hit just a couple of those, just briefly. One is just that the amount of the minefields were just far worse than what Ukraine expected. And the general actually in the article says at first he thought there was something wrong with his commanders, so he changed some of them. Then he thought maybe some of the soldiers weren't fighting hard, so he moved some of the brigades around. But when those failed to make a difference, he goes in to talk about that essentially he believes technology has prevented both and this is this is his words the level of our technological development today has put both of us both us and our enemies in a stupor and he talks about how when the russians have been doing attempting their advances as i reported i believe last week and the week prior in avdivka They've been trying to push forward with large amounts of troops and taking unbelievable losses. And the general is telling this reporter from The Economist, he says, quote, On our monitor screens, the day I was there, we saw 140 Russian machines ablaze, destroyed within four hours of coming within range of our artillery. Those fleeing were chased by first-person view drones, remote-controlled, and carrying explosive charges that their operators simply crash into the enemy. The same picture unfolds when Ukrainian troops try to advance. And then the article talks about that General Zaluzny says the battlefield is one in which modern sensors can identify any concentration of forces and use precision weapons to destroy it. And he says, quote, The simple fact is that we see everything the enemy is doing and they see everything that we are doing. And in order to break this deadlock, he says that we need something new. And he says, the crazy quote, like the gunpowder which the Chinese invented, in which we are still using to kill each other. Then he goes into some of the issues about they didn't get enough tanks or demining equipment fast enough. Then he talks about that F-16s didn't arrive fast enough for this counteroffensive and even though they'll be there next year, it'll basically almost be not that great because Russia has improved its air defense system. So even that kind of sounds defeatist. He talks a little bit about how the ATACMS long-range missiles didn't arrive in time. So again, you've got that comment, all of which is true, but it just comes across a bit negative. And the article ends by saying, again, they're quoting General Zaluzny. And again, like I said, this is a quote. He says, quote, Let's be honest. It's a feudal state, he's referring to Russia, where the cheapest resource is human life. And for us, the most expensive thing we have is our people. And so he talks about that the longer the war goes on and the harder it's going to be to sustain. And he says, quote, We need to look for this solution. We need to find this gunpowder, quickly master it, and use it for a speedy victory. Because sooner or later, we are going to find that we simply don't have enough people to fight. Now, further in the article, in more of the middle of it, it even talks about how General uh, Zaluzny has met with the Google executive, Eric Schmidt. They were looking for some kind of solutions and technology. and the, But the article talks about there is no 
short-term possible technological solution. So you read this article, and it's completely deflating. It's, I mean, it almost just seems like, like throw your hands up because no breakthroughs happening. He's using the word stalemate himself. Russia doesn't care about losses. It just, it is tough medicine to read. That's the bottom line on that article. But the article is actually even worse than it sounds. Because as I said when I first started discussing this article, this article was released a week ago. November 1st, if you recall the date I said. We literally covered probably almost a quarter of last week's podcast was about the funding battle in Congress. And if you're on congressional staff in Congress and you hear about this article, which kind of started immediately making shockwaves in the foreign policy world, this is not good ammunition for the side that wants to fund Ukraine. So like I said, this this article drops and it's it's like a bomb going off. This is and was not a good thing if you are on Team Ukraine. I assure you of that. Unless it was some massive bluff and then three days later there's a huge breakthrough and it was like, oh, there's no breakthrough. And then Russian generals are like, oh, we can finally sleep and let the guys go 25% on the lines. And then boom, there's a massive attack and we break through. That isn't what happened, and that article, unfortunately, doesn't appear to be PSYOPs in any way. And if it is PSYOPs, it was probably the worst time PSYOPs operation ever. Because again, Ukraine funding is on the line in the halls of Congress. So the article drops, it's a bombshell, and of course, President Zelensky has to say something about it. Because he's got his own general saying a breakthrough isn't possible, and using the word stalemate. I mean, this would be like you being the founder or the board of directors of a company, and you've got your CEO out there saying, yeah, you know, we're not going to make money this year, or we're not sure the company's going to make it. And you're like, what? We, we're, we're putting this money in there, and you don't know if we're going to make it? These are not the words that typically leads to long you know, to job security or longevity in any way. These are not these are not the words you say lightly, in a, in a perfect world, certainly. They're not the words you say lightly, and they're typically only words you would say as part of a larger messaging strategy. If the president had signed off on them, if you're trying to get across either desperation or the need for or whatever, maybe everyone's on the same page and you're like, guys, we got to just break some hard truths out there, maybe that makes sense. But that doesn't appear to be the case because President Zelensky has spoken out since the article and he clearly disagrees with it. Let me share what he said. Zelensky, pretty quickly after the article hits the media, makes a little bit of a firestorm, Zelensky in a news conference says, Time has passed. People are tired Regardless of their status, and this is understandable, but this is not a stalemate. 
I emphasize this once again. So he again says, it's not a stalemate. In fact, even, it wasn't just him speaking. Also, his deputy head of the office of the president said that the general's remark, quote, eases the work of the aggressor. I mean, that is a diplomatic slap across the face, or at least a slap down, or a get-in-line general. Again, the, the deputy head of the office of the president, in a comment that was almost certainly approved by Zelensky, said that the general's remarks, quote, eases the work of the aggressor. So they're literally saying, the article in the comments, they helped Russia. They eased the work of the aggressor. That is how much damage that article has done. Now I want to be as, I guess, understanding and kind to General Zaluzny as I can. After all, I mean, without question, Ukraine won't release its casualty figures, but some analysts put the number at 100,000 to 120, some as high as 150, but that's generally the Russian casualties are put at that number, and they're typically seen as higher. Ukraine has had a little bit more effective win-loss ratio, so to speak. But again, this general has overseen a year plus of heavy fighting, 100,000 casualties, probably 10 to 12,000 of which were actual KIA or killed in action. Another 80, 90,000, maybe more, wounded. He has seen unbelievable suffering. He's held the army together. And so I don't want to beat up on him too badly. But it was just, in hindsight, really, really bad timing on that article. And the mood in it is, I mean, there's no nice way to say it, but it's not... Not a lot of optimism in that, was there? And so, I wanted to just talk about this for just a second, because if you start thinking that this war could be a stalemate or is a stalemate, then you can just, you know, barely or moderately support the war, neither side's advancing, it's a stalemate. The Ukrainian general says it's a stalemate, the past six months says it's a stalemate, nothing much happening. We'll just keep throwing a little dollars. Everything's fine. No big deal that Ukrainian cities are going to continue to get bombed. There's no real pressure on Russia or on its president to make any big decisions. It's just a stalemate. It'll just drift off the news. So you see where I'm going with this. That That is a worst-case scenario, and that is why President Zelensky had to push back. There is just way too much at stake in the U.S. Congress, in the budgets of many European countries. In fact, this week alone, the EU announced that Ukraine had made good progress toward joining the European Union. I mean, you've got the entire future of Ukraine that's almost like balanced on a hinge. And it's not like Russia could invade or retake the country or do any of that stuff. Worst case, it probably is a stalemate. But it also is so close to being 
the potential of an incredible victory for Ukraine, especially if U.S. elections go well, if they can get some funding through, F-16s are starting to get closer to arriving. There's just a lot of good stuff. Ukraine is much more prepared for what will happen this winter when Russia tries to hit its cities. The air defenses are better. Just things are much more stabilized. And so it's just not a great time for that article, which again is why President Zelensky pushed back so hard. And what I wanted to bring up with about this little situation is that wars, as I said at the very beginning, are not just about what's happening on the battlefield. Unfortunately, wars are about what people think. It's about moods. It's about so much more than what's happening on the battlefield. Just as a quick example, during the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, there's this large offensive countrywide. More than 80,000 North Vietnamese troops and guerrillas do this surprise attack across 100 towns and cities. They hit 36 of the 44 provincial capitals. It was the largest military operation conducted by either side up to that point of the war. And so North, North Vietnam launches this thing. They thought it would lead to like a popular uprising that would allow South Vietnam's government to collapse. But unfortunately, even though it was a, ta- a large-scale surprise, they messed up a bit on some of their attacks. And so some of the areas were ready for these attacks. And the, the North, Vietnam, North Vietnamese, they had horrendous casualties. And there was no uprising. Nothing... The city of Wei was taken, but there was no real tactical victory in it at all. It was a massive defeat for North Vietnam. Massive. Except for one thing. So, North Vietnam loses so many troops. But in America, the American public thought the war was going in the direction of... South Vietnam and the U.S. And when they saw this massive attack, it absolutely knocked the wind out of U.S. support for the war. And then General Westmoreland, who was leading the, th- the, the situation at the time, says that they may need 200,000 more American soldiers. They may have to activate reserves. And then even loyal supporters of the war started to reevaluate whether they actually supported the war. Now, I'm not going to get into the who's right or wrong on that. My point is, the battlefield is only a small part of any war. And so, even though the Tet Offensive was technically a horrendous loss for North Vietnam, it was, in the end, what led them to victory. And so that's why this whole talk of a stalemate is very damaging, especially when it's not some critic of the war, it's the general who's leading the effort for Ukraine. And I'll be honest, you do have to wonder if President Zelensky, you know, you've got this kind of public smackdown or public get back in line kind of situation where he's had to speak out 
against his general. And it does make you wonder. I don't have any idea what may or may not happen. But you do have to wonder if Zelensky isn't thinking about replacing him. This probably seriously damaged his reputation. And, you know, just speaking about our own civil war, you know, Abraham Lincoln, the civilian leader of that war, just like Zelensky, had to go through a number of generals. The the list is, it's really almost too much to put down on paper, but he's, you know, he went through Erwin McDowell. He went through George McClellan, who's probably the most famous one that was too cautious and too indecisive. Then he went through General John Pope after he relieved McClellan. Then he has to bring McClellan back in charge. McClellan again, too cautious. After the Battle of Antietam, they have to look for something else. So they put... Basically, McClellan had a chance to put in some reserves and push all out and and probably could have, I mean, General Lee in the South had withdrawn. He probably could have seriously won that battle slash campaign, but there was just too much blood, 23,000 casualties, and so he did not commit the reserves. He blinked again. So Lincoln replaces him. They put in Ambrose Burnside, who wants to show that he's aggressive and because McClellan hadn't fought enough, Lincoln's like, we'll get this guy. And he does this just crazy, bloody frontal attack against this impregnable Confederate position that was held by General Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Attacks the heights of Fredericksburg. Loses 12,000 men just trying to prove that he's willing to fight. But he does it in like the, the most absurd, strategically foolish way possible so he has to get relieved or Lincoln decides to but again it was a pretty horrendous tactical error so then they go with a guy named General Fighting Joe Hooker he gets out generaled by General Lee he gets relieved then they use George Meade and then they finally find the man that everyone knows which is General Ulysses Grant but that's a lot of generals that Lincoln went through and then Grant goes in and he just has the drive and this grim determination to just press and push and push and push and some people you know they called him all kinds of names like cruel and callous and uncaring but it's almost like he understood after four years of war that the best way to save lives was to push and so I think that's almost what is happening in Ukraine I have just kind of felt that Ukraine hasn't committed enough. That it's almost like, and I get it, I mean, they have lost so many, both soldiers and civilians, but there is a lot on the line. And in some ways, whether it's a a fist fight or even a football game or in anything, sometimes you just have to commit. And I just feel like, they need to put more of an all-out effort in one area and just absolutely just go. Because to not do so, if you go into the winter with this stalemate, at some point the funding's going to start drying up. At some point it's going to look like it just doesn't matter how much help they get. And in doing so, you actually extend the war. 
And if you start to lose funding from the West, well, then at that point, you are literally costing your nation more lives and extending the war. So in a weird way, by attacking more aggressively, by losing more soldiers in the short term, you can actually save lives in the long term, especially if you increase the pressure on Russia's president. So that's just kind of my thoughts. Now, that's not just my thoughts, though. I am actually very fortunate that I have some folks who correspond with me with military backgrounds, and I was emailing back and forth with one, happened to be a retired lieutenant colonel, and I said, you know, I just, I said this about a week ago, I just feel like they need to do an all-out push in one area and just go. And he said the same thing. He had way more military experience, way more rank, seen way more stuff than me. And he had the same feeling. And I, I just feel like if you read media reports, and I wanted to go to actually one and quote a column from the Washington Post. It's written by Max Boot, who's obviously a longtime foreign policy analyst. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he talks about that behind the scenes, American generals are frustrated that the Ukrainians are not using combined arms tactics that we teach in the West. I've talked about this in previous podcast episodes. And of course, the counter is, well, the Ukrainians don't have any kind of air superiority, so some of those tactics don't work. But the truth is, Ukraine's own term for what it's been doing on its on its counter-offensive is literally stretch, starve, and strike. And we have talked about this so many times. They're doing a broad front advance, although it's not much of an advance, unfortunately, but small units moving forward, trying to deal with mines, trying to force some level of pressure across the 600-mile front so that Russia doesn't or isn't able to really reinforce anywhere. But as I've talked about before, Russia doesn't have many reinforcements anyway. So U.S. officials have been very frustrated. In fact, in the column, the most recent one from Max Boot, some officers, privately, of course, speaking to Max Boot, say that Ukraine is practicing attritional warfare that was characterized by Soviet military strategy. Now, of course, many of Ukraine's officers were originally trained in Soviet doctrine. So it's only of late, in recent years, that they have increasingly been modernizing and becoming taught or trained in the way of NATO and Western armies. So they historically kind of still do things the way Russia has. and that So there's been some frustration about that. But I need to wrap this article, this whole section up. And so I want to end on a more positive note, quoting from that same column from Max Boot in the Washington Post. So here are some positives that in this kind of friction with all these balls up in the air, so much at stake, so much that could go right next week 
or that could not. A few positives, because like I said, let's end on a good note. First, in the in the column, Max Boot interviews retired Lieutenant General Frederick Ben Hodges. He's a former commander of U.S. Army Europe. And he talked about some of the things, some of the weapons that Ukraine needs. We've all talked about them. More F-16s, more cruise missiles, more attack ons etc., etc. But he, former retired General Hodges points out that the Russian positions in southern Ukraine are all supplied from Crimea. So, quote, if you're able to make the Russian Navy, Air Force, and logistics relocate, you change the entire calculus from the Russian side. And, of course, Ukraine's already been doing this. They've pushed the Russian Navy back. No one really expected that. That's really, honestly, a just an incredible success that they've been able to do this. They also recently pulled off something that no one expected when they, by pushing that Russian fleet back, they are able to export grain, which the Russians had pulled out of the deal. Obviously, the West and the U.S. and Ukraine was finding ways to go over land, trying to figure out other options. Britain even talked about at one point maybe defending some ships that were uh, would be uh, carrying some of the grain. Then they kind of pulled back from that. But through all of that, by pushing back the Russian fleet, Ukraine essentially solved the problem itself. No one expected that. No one expected many of the successes that Ukraine has pulled off. So Ukraine always, typically, outperforms and does better than anyone expects. And so there are, historically speaking, reasons for optimism. And, as we've said so many times, we in the West risk very little We're talking 0.65% of the federal budget to support Ukraine. It's mostly old equipment, as I've said so many times. And so this is just one of those deals where the U.S. cannot, we absolutely cannot step back. We cannot reduce our support. This is not a time for us to blink. And I believe it's not a time for Ukraine to blink either, which is, you know, I'm saying that from the safety of here It's not really fair for me to say that, but there is a lot on the line for Ukraine. And so I hope that President Zelensky, and whether it's with this general or with another one, maybe the general just needs a good pep talk and a reminder that he can handle things on the battlefield and just keep the press interviews to a small amount, small amount being zero, and let the President Zelensky handle all of those because he seems to have done a much better job. But they need to get that stuff taken care of. Because there is a lot at stake for both Ukraine, for the West, and for, honestly, the entire world. Because China and Russia and other countries are watching this. So it's a much bigger thing than just a small front between two nation states. And whether or not there is a stalemate. There's a lot on the line. A lot of balls up in the air, as I said in the beginning. And so we gotta hope and pray that some good things happen in the coming days and weeks because they need to happen and they need to happen soon. Okay. We're going to take one quick break and then we will share the motivation and wisdom section. Just a quick reminder. If you love what you're listening to and would like to support what I'm doing, you can sign up on my Substack page to help support the show. 
for $5 per month, you can help me grow this into something even bigger. And I think by doing that in a weird way, you'll help contribute to me pulling off something I really want to do, but at a much larger level. You'll help unify our country, you'll help educate our country, and ultimately, you'll help more people become more engaged and better informed. And we all know studies show that more informed, more engaged citizens lead to a better government. And ultimately, that will lead to a better country. I really do have some big dreams for this platform, including increased frequency, but I do need some help justifying that kind of time commitment. No pressure, though. And if you do sign up, you can come and go as you please. Details for signing up can be found on my Substack page and in the episode notes. Thanks in advance for your support. I really do appreciate it. This is the motivation and wisdom section. I share these each week because I think all of us could use a few words of encouragement. Here is the first one. Don't rush the process. Allow yourself to grow at your own pace. Stop comparing your progress to other people's. Next one. Hard times will pass, and you'll grow stronger. Keep the faith and move forward. Next one. The less you respond to negative people, the more peaceful your life will become. Next. If your thoughts are turning negative, stop. Take a deep breath. Think of something or someone you love that brings you joy. Hold that thought, smile, move on, enjoy the rest of your day with a positive mindset. Next one. Your dream doesn't have an expiration date. Take a deep breath and try again. Next one. Don't rush the process. Trust it. Great things take time. Next one. Worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. Next one. I'm proud of the person I'm becoming. My mindset has changed. My priorities have changed. My taste has changed. My tolerance has changed. I'm evolving. Next one. Push through the pain. Giving up hurts more. Next one. Thoughts generate more thoughts on their own. When we spend time thinking about negative things, our mind generates more and more negative thoughts. When we spend time thinking about positive things, our mind generates more and more positive thoughts. So think about positive thoughts. Next one. Your values are what you do when no one is looking. Oh, that's such a good one. Again, your values are what you do when no one is looking. Next one. Don't practice until you get it right. Practice. Until you can't get it wrong. Another good one. Don't practice until you can't get it right. 
Practice until you can't get it wrong. Okay, let's do three from the Bible. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They exult in your righteousness. Next one. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Next one. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Again, I said a couple of weeks ago that I wasn't going to name what chapters and verses, and I go back and forth on that, but I'm not naming those these days. You can look any of them up easily by hitting the 15 second back and looking them up online. But to me, it just seems like too much of a distraction to name the chapter and verse. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining on the, joining me on this episode. I hope you are proud of our great country. I know it's not perfect, but I am still so proud of this country, and I hope you are too. As you go through this week, remember that being divisive is easy, but being a unifier is nearly impossible. Never forget that. That's what we need to strive for. Also, don't forget that most Americans are good. Don't give in to panic or fear and be nicer to everyone around you, especially that person you disagree with on social media. Hey, thanks again. Make sure you sign up for the email list on the Substack page if you haven't already, just in case any major breakthroughs happen in Ukraine. Note the optimism. I will definitely be covering that if that happens. I will catch you guys if that doesn't happen next Thursday, same time, same place. Thanks so much.